Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and today's message is from our series in Acts titled Continuation. Today, Kirk Atorky is going to be teaching from Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. And in this episode, we're going to talk about something really important, and that is God's powerful ability to somehow take evil, turn it on its head, and use it for good. So go ahead and open up your Bible to Acts chapter 23, and let's get started. If you want to go in Acts chapter 23, we're going to be in in verses 12 through 35. And as we go through this passage, we're going to be talking about how God exchanges evil for good. He takes something that's intended to bring about negative consequences, and he actually turns that on its head and uses it for his good purposes. Uh, The other thing I want to share with you in this passage is that our identity informs our action, right? So who you are determines what you do. Um, And so if you think about that, like who I am determines what I do, uh, the question then is, who am I, right? Uh, Who are you? So if if you were to ask, like, say, write down five statements that define who you are, and then the actions that flow from who you are, what would you write down? And so I thought, you know, I'm not just going to ask you to do it. I'll do it. Um, and so one of the things that, that about me is I, re, I admire how straightforward, bold, and loving Jesus is in the Gospels. Um, he's a, he was a person that sort of told it like it is. He would approach people, and he was just like straightforward with them and loving at the same time. And so I seek to balance that in my life. I, I'm a person who tends to be more straightforward than loving, and so I have to balance those two things. I've learned over the years that sometimes I can come across a little too straightforward. Uh, when my parents named me Kurt, they might have known what they were doing. Um, but uh, so I'll give you an example of me being straightforward. Okay. I think that neckties, houseplants, glitter, and dancing are four of the stupidest things humanity has ever come up with. Um, that's, I just think they're dumb. Um, I've never put on a necktie and thought, oh boy, I hope that can stay on there for the rest of my life. I'm always like, when do I get to throw this in front of a shotgun? Um, and then like, like houseplants. Um, People complain about having bugs in the kitchen. They're like, I don't like ants. I don't like flies. And I look at the plant and go, you know where they live, right? Um, I don't understand what you're thinking here. Um, Glitter. uh, I think glitter is worse than the coronavirus. It never dies. There is no vaccine. Um, There is no antibody infusion. It just lives forever. Um, And then dancing. I grew up playing baseball, and there were multiple times where I would get hit in the face with a baseball, like take a short hop at third base and your lip is bleeding. I have more fun doing that than I do dancing, okay? Like I had more fun splitting, spitting blood than I do dancing. Um, And, uh, you know, I've never thought, you know what's missing in my life? Some dance moves. Um, Now, some of you, when I've been coerced into dancing, you might think, he's missing some dance moves. Um, But I've never thought, you know, I just, that would make me feel more complete if I could dance. Um, But, you know, like those are, I'm obviously being a little bit silly, but I do have a tendency to shoot straight. Like these are the things, you're going to get to know where I'm at on things, particularly if I trust you, um, and I'm going to try and do that in a loving way. Uh, another thing about me is, is I believe that I am salt and light and I should speak up for what's true. Uh, so I'm not afraid or ashamed of the gospel. Um, an example of this is we had some Mormon missionaries come over to our house in the middle of a, we were doing a renovation to our house and they said, hey, we'd love to help you with a project around your house. And I was like, the dumpster needs filling. Um, and so I gave them some gloves. They filled the dumpster. We fed them lunch. And then uh, they wanted to talk about uh, their views of, of 
of God. And I was very straightforward with him that I don't believe that your understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus did is a biblical understanding of him. Uh, I, I think that, that uh, the person of Jesus, he is, he is God in the flesh, and you don't believe that. I believe that the, the word of God is infallible and doesn't need any extra books, and you don't believe that. And so we kind of walked through where our differences were. Um, and five hours later, um, I, think, I think one of the missionaries was like, huh, I'm interested. And the other one was like, are we leaving yet? Um, but you know, I'm just, I'm not afraid to have those conversations. Um, another thing about me is, is I believe that I'm, I'm deeply changed by God's covenant love for me. And I believe that, that love is a choice, not just a feeling. Um, so I maintain the course and push forward regardless of how I feel. So like when I said I do to Becky, uh, it'll be 18 years in, in, uh, in June. I meant it. Like, I didn't mean maybe or kind of. I meant I'm doing this. And there may be times where we don't see eye to eye. There may be times where we struggle. There may be times where she wishes I was a little bit different in my personality. Maybe she wish I could dance. Um, but we're sticking this thing out. And then you have kids, and your kids roll along. If you have kids, you understand that when you have a kid, all of a sudden your priorities change. And you love that kid, but there comes a season where you, have to, where you realize, I'm going to have to sacrifice some of the things that I want so that they can move forward. And there are times where you go, do I really want to make this sacrifice? But love is a choice, not just a feeling. And so you make the choice. You do it. You do what's right. Right? And I believe that that's how we should be in our relationship with Jesus as well. He has issued covenant love to us. He loves us unconditionally. He cares about us no matter what. And we should respond with that kind of love. That when I say I'm a follower of Jesus, I don't mean just here and occasionally. I, like, I mean I am, I am following Jesus in his way and in his love. And nothing's going to stop me from doing that. Not how I feel. Not, not a circumstance of life that I go through. I'm sticking it out with him. Okay, and so that's another thing about me. I also believe that I'm a child of God who has not arrived. Um, so I embrace challenges rather than run from them. Uh, I'm a child of God, but I, I have not arrived. So I embrace challenges rather than run from them. Now, you guys all know that I haven't arrived because you hear me try and pronounce Greek and Hebrew names and you're like, that was dyslexic if I ever heard it. Um, but I, I always know that I have more growing to do and that I always will have more growing to do. There will always be things that God has yet to show me. Uh, there'll be new gems to uncover in the Bible, new people that I learn to love and understand, um, new areas of trial that develop my character and make me more like Jesus. I'm a child of God that hasn't arrived, so I, I embrace challenges rather than run from them. Uh, and then the fifth one that I wrote is I'm completely dependent on Jesus for personal growth and accomplishment. Uh, I, I do not have a self-help program that will make me better. I don't have one to offer you that will make you better. Um, I'm completely dependent on Jesus for personal growth and accomplishment in my life. So I lean into God's word, to prayer, to guidance from the Holy Spirit, and to a community of believers that will draw me closer and closer to Jesus. Um, and so I set my mind on God every day. I, I, I make a choice that I'm going to spend time in his word, that I'm going to pray, that I'm going to live with an awareness that God's spirit is inside of me. I'm going to look to him and pay attention to his promptings throughout the day. That, that's a choice that I make. Like, I'm going to do this daily. Um, and so those are just five statements about me. Uh, if you want to know, the Bible has over 40 specific statements about who you are in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's actually over 40 specific statements about who you are in Christ. And so I'm just writing five as a start. 
I think the other thing that I could do is I could write five for, like, who am I as a husband? I could write five for who I am as a father, five for who I am as a leader, who I am as a friend, and so on. Um, and in fact, I think it's a good thing to do because when you do those things, uh, it focuses your mind on what God has done in you and what God is doing in you. It, it draws you into who he's who he has made you, and who he's molding you into. And so I think it's, in a, it's a good thing to do as God develops your character. But the point here is that action flows from identity. So forming a right and biblical identity is crucial. Like if what I do depends on who I am, then I need to form a good identity. And it needs to be based upon what God says about me, from the scriptures, okay? And so that's what I'm gonna, one of the things I'm gonna show you this morning is as we go through the people in this passage, who they are and what they do because of who they are, okay? I'm also gonna show you that no matter who you are right now, um, maybe you don't know anything about Jesus and you're kind of wandered in here searching. Uh, you know that your life is kind of a wreck um, and you know that it isn't everything that it could be, uh, but you're in here searching. I want you to know that no matter who you are or where you are in life, the gospel of Jesus is the transformative identity truth that you need to know. Um, it's not one of them. Uh, Jesus didn't say, I'm sort of the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when you come into relationship with him, he is the transformative identity truth that you need to know about yourself. And so that's what I want to show you this morning as we go through this passage. Let me pray, and we'll take a look at it. Uh, so our Heavenly Father, we do, uh, we come to you looking to understand who you've made us. Uh, we, look, we look to you to understand how do we get out of the cycles of life that we know to be the ones that we don't want to be in. Um, how, does, how does who you say we are change the way that we live? And then the amazing thing, God, is we look at this and we, look, we see how you take something that is evil and broken and you, you flip it on its head and you, you then use it for your good. And if I'm honest, God, that's what you've done with me. You took something that was sinful, harmful. That's the definition of evil. That, is, that which is sinful and harmful to you and others. You took me in that state and you turned my life upside down through the gospel of Jesus. And I've come out of... Uh, that time of life to be this new creation in you. And that is the hope that we share. Uh, that is the hope that we live. And so God, I just pray that that would be really clear this morning uh, to each and every one of us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the book of Acts, and if you don't know the book of Acts, uh, what happens in this book is uh, Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, he appears for a period of 40 days, and then he talks to his disciples, and he tells them some things. One of the things that he told them, he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and then right after that, he ascends into power at the right hand of the Father, and so from that point... What happens is the church then receives power. The Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost indwells believers in Jesus Christ. They receive power and then they become his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And where we're at in this right now is the part where we're talking about the ends of the earth. We're near the end of the book and what God has been doing through the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and some other men is he's been using them to spread the truth of who Jesus is throughout the Mediterranean world and then eventually it's going to go to Rome through the Apostle Paul 
and then all roads lead to Rome, and we know from church history that the gospel has moved across the planet from there. And so that's what, where we're at in this. Now, what Paul has been doing is he's been sharing the gospel with non-Jewish people and Jewish people alike. And the Jewish people, he's saying, if you want to remain Jewish in the way that you worship God, go for it. But don't force that on people who are not Jewish. The, the keys to following Jesus are trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we would value uh, life, that we would live sexual morality, uh, and that we would care about following him. He, no idols. You follow him, not some false god. Okay, and so that's the teaching that he's been delivering. And in the process, some of the Jewish people get upset because they believe that he's undermining the Jewish religion. And so Paul has had two interactions uh, with the Sanhedrin, which is the group, Jewish group of leadership within Jerusalem. And what we've seen from the Sanhedrin is they're belligerent, untruthful, and murderous. And so on two occasions, both of them, uh, Roman soldiers have kept Paul from being killed. If they had their way, they would have killed him, but Roman soldiers keep that from happening. Now the Jewish leadership is looking for a way to kill Paul while he's in Roman custody. So Paul is under guard in the fortress of Antonia, and they're trying to figure out how do we kill him while there's... Uh, uh, roughly a thousand soldiers, uh, Roman soldiers guarding him. How are we going to do that? Okay. The, so this group of people, their hearts are set on evil, but God has a plan to use their evil for good. And so that's what we're going to see. And if you pick up with me in verse 12, it says this. When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves other, under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he will bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. And so the Jewish temple, uh, right next to the Jewish temple was the fortress of Antonia where Paul is being kept under Roman guard. And it's about a quarter mile from the fortress of Antonia to where uh, he would have been brought for more questioning. And these group of people, they say, get him to come from the fortress to where he's being questioned. And somewhere along that quarter mile, we will jump the Roman guards and kill Paul. That's what they're committed to do. So these 40 plus men decide and swear an oath to kill Paul. The interesting thing is the Sanhedrin joins in the plan. They say, sounds good. Let's, let's see if we can get this to work. Uh, the Greek word in this verse translated curse means to devote to destruction. Um, its Hebrew equivalent was used in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 20 to describe how the Israelites were to devote to destruction all of the Canaanite objects of idolatry. So when they went into the land and the conquest took place under Joshua, they said you're to devote to destruction destruction, all of these idolatrous forms of worship, uh, the way that they worship a false God who you sacrifice your children to, and the, the way that they worship a false God that you worship by practicing sexual immorality. It's like, well, when you go in there, we want you to devote all of those to destruction, get rid of them, okay? And so the same word is what these people are saying about Paul. They're saying he is a form of idolatry and blasphemy that deserves to be killed, destroyed. That's who we believe Paul is. And the reason we believe that's who Paul is is because he is proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. He is proclaiming that all of the Old Testament proved and pointed to a Messiah that would suffer and die. Jesus is that Messiah who suffered on your behalf and died for the consequences of your sin and was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of power and will judge each and every individual based upon their faith or lack of of faith in him. That's the message that Paul is sharing. And these people are saying that is untrue about God. 
this man should be put to death. He should be devoted to destruction because of his blasphemy and idolatry. So they're totally missing who God is. This group of people that are supposed to understand the Old Testament and share the truth of who God is with others. Uh, the, the interesting thing is, is they're actually exhibiting idolatrous behavior. Because one of the things that shows up in the scriptures over and over again is when you practice idolatry, when you worship a false god or a wrong version of God, what happens is you're willing to take the life of other people. And so in this situation, here they are proclaiming that Paul's the idolater and he's bringing life to the situation and they want to bring death to the situation. They're actually demonstrating the own idolatry within themselves. The other thing that's interesting is this, so this is their identity. They're zealous Jewish law keepers and so they believe that killing, killing Jesus was the right thing to do and they believe that killing followers of Jesus, especially their leaders, is the right thing to do. And if you remember back to who Saul of Tarsus is, he was the one who was leading the persecution of the Christians. He was in the same boat as these people. And so we see how God actually took this broken person who was doing evil, his name Saul of Tarsus, and he transforms him into the apostle to the Gentiles who we understand to be the apostle Paul. And so this is a living example of the life change in Jesus and those who are around him in this situation, these Jewish people, they don't want to see it. They don't want to be told that there's something inside of them that needs to be changed. They don't want to hear repent your beliefs about God are wrong. They want to kill the messenger who's bringing that line of repent. So that's their identity and that's what they do. Uh, they're, they're actually far from God and proclaiming to be close to him, they're far from him. And because they're far from him, they demonstrate that with their actions by being willing to kill the very messenger of the grace of God. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all know this point in time in our lives where we were there, where we did not want to hear the message. We wanted to stomp it out. We wanted to be far from this message that there's something fundamentally wrong with me and I need to repent from that and come into relationship with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I'm fine by myself, right? I think we all know those times where we, that time where we were there. I also think we know the time where God orchestrated the circumstances of our lives to bring us to our knees and see our need of Jesus. I think if you're honest as a Christian, you know the places where even now you say, I'm fine, God, I got this. And he says, no, no you don't. You need to learn to trust me. Um, and this is something that's going on in each and every one of us. But what God is going to do is he's going to take this circumstance where there's a group of people who want to do evil and he's actually going to use it to further his kingdom. So in verse 16, it says, but the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander and said, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside, and inquired privately, what is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow as though they are going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you, because there are more than 40 of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone what you have informed me about. 
And so what we see in this is we see how God actually protects Paul and sets up his journey to Caesarea. He's going to move Paul from Jerusalem to the coast near Caesarea, which eventually leads to Paul's imprisonment in Rome. And so if you look at this, you have a group of people, Jewish people, who are fighting against the one that God has chosen to bring them the message of faith and repentance. And in their effort to kill him, God is actually going to use their negative approach to further his kingdom. And this sounds a lot like the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, right? Joseph's brothers betray him. They sell him into slavery. And God actually takes all of that negative. You get to Genesis 20, 50. He says, what you intended for evil, God used for good. You thought you were going to destroy me, but God actually took your evil and your desire to destroy me, and he used it to further his kingdom. And the same thing happens here with Paul. Uh, and so the circumstances around Paul's life, it's interesting, it's, it's his nephew that does this. This is a young man. Uh, the word there used in, this, in, the, in the Greek, it means somebody in their 20s or 30s. So Paul has a nephew that's in his 20s or 30s, and he has access to the Sanhedrin. He hears about the plot. He tells Paul. So God actually, he's orchestrating this whole thing. He's using his hand to protect him and further what's going on. And so another piece of identity that we need to understand is what is the identity of God? Right? So we talk about who, who we are determines what we do, but who God is shapes what he does. And he's revealed some of who he is to us, right? And so having a right picture of who God is is so important. And what we see here is that he is the sovereign God of creation. He made everything that we see, including you and me. And he cares about everything that he made, including me and you. He is, he is the sovereign God of history. Everything that's happened up to this point in human history, he has been in control of it. Uh, he, everything that will happen moving forward, God is in control of it. And ultimately, he's, he's in control of each and every one of our destinies. The direction of each and every one of our souls and where we go, he has sovereign control over that. And so one of the things that comes from a statement like that, well, if God is good and God is sovereign and he is in control, then how come there's evil? And, and how come he didn't make a way uh, that... that, that I mean, like, how can a good God send people to eternal punishment? How can that be part of who God is? And it's a valid question, right? And so I want to give you some reasons why this is the case. The first one is because God cannot reward those who rebel against him to freely roam around his kingdom, right? So the picture of the Bible is that when Jesus returns, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and that those who have placed faith in Jesus and trusted him, they will enter that new heavens and new earth. Those who have rebelled against Jesus, rejected his message, they will not enter the new heavens and the new earth, and they go to a place that we've come to understand as hell. They're out of the presence of God, okay? And so, he can't let people who have rejected him, rebelled against him, and said that their way is the right way over his into the new heavens and the new earth. And there's several reasons why. One is they would tarnish the perfection of the new heavens and the new earth. So people who fight back against God, rebel against him, and are still covered in sin, to bring them into a sinless place, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. And so in his justice, he can't reward people who have rejected him. Uh, the other reason he can't take people who have rejected him is that they would harm the inhabitants of the new heavens and the new earth. If, if, if I rebel against God and I don't give him his rightful place, the inevitable consequence that we've seen throughout human history is I hurt others and I hurt myself. So if I don't allow God's rule in my life, I will hurt others. And so it doesn't, again, you can't say, well, you've rejected me all of your life, but come on in and ruin perfection. 
Uh, they would carry the curse of sin and death into the new heavens and earth, and that infection would spread. They would reignite the same rebellious, broken, and sinful patterns we experience now in the new heavens and new earth. And so there's a clear delineation at the end of what we would understand to be time, where God moves us from the, the, the earth that we live on now into a new heavens and a new earth. And the, the question isn't how good did you perform, how well did you do, or does your good outweigh your bad? The question is, do you trust God's definition of what is good and what is evil? And have you believed that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died for your sins, and then he was raised from the dead to prove that he's the Messiah? And if your answer to that is yes, then he says, you have trusted me, then come into the realm of the trusting. If you reject me, then I'm going to put you into the realm of the untrusting. Because to mix the untrusting with the trusting is to do what we're doing all over again. And that's not what he's after in the end. Uh, the other thing to recognize is that because God is love, he does not manipulate people into returning his love. Um, each and every one of us have what we would call free choice. And God does not coerce belief of some while leaving others to perish. Um, his desire is that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's 2 Peter 3.9. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.4, God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. So we understand that God, his desire is that all would be saved, but he's not going to treat you like a robot and turn the switch. Believe. Don't believe. That's not who God is. He gives us free choice and he presents us with who he is. And so uh, we know that God loves all and longs for all to know him and repent, but he doesn't decree uni universal salvation or make up your mind for you. Our free choice is an active ingredient in salvation. The salvation is a gift from God, but your free choice is an active ingredient into the determination of your eternal direction. The other thing we know about God is he is saddened by the eternal destiny of those who reject him. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent from your evil ways. And so God, he doesn't go, boy, I sure am glad the path that leads to destruction is wide and the one that leads to, to life is narrow. He, he's saying, I wish that you would all come to repentance. Uh, and I take no pleasure in those who reject me. I, I don't want them to be apart from me. They're my children. I love them. You can imagine one of your children rejects you in their adult life and you're crushed by that rejection. That is what God is experiencing uh, times billions. And so it hurts his heart. He doesn't delight in that. It actually hurts him and he longs that we would all repent and come to life. The other thing to recognize is that God has done everything necessary for you to be saved. I don't do anything to get saved. You don't do anything to get saved. It's all his grace. Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through the kindness 
through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then he says, for you are saved by grace through faith. It is God's gift, but it is your faith. It is your free choice. It's God's grace, but it's your choice. Those are the two ingredients that always have to be a part of this. God gives and you believe or you disbelieve. You are saved by grace through faith. And this being saved is not of yourselves. It is a gift not from works so that no one can boast. And so the clear picture from scripture is no one is going to stand before God and go, my good outweighed my bad, I get to come in. It's going to be, God, I trusted you. And I realize that it's your grace, your gift that has given me life. I could never earn it. I could never deserve it. But because of what you've given me, I realize that in Christ I am saved. So that's a key part of who God is. And what we see him doing in this passage is that he is in control. He's moving the events of your life so that you can repent of your old ways. So that you could repent of your old ways and find life in Christ. I mean, he, he takes the events of your lives, the, the, times where, the times where you're crushed by something, the times where you're uplifted by something, the times where someone shares a message with you about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He takes all of those events in your life, and what he does with them is he, he then says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Will you let me in? And what each and every believer has done is each and every believer has reached the point where they say, I am not going to do this on my own anymore. I repent of my old ways. I bow before the throne. I recognize you as not just the king of the universe, but the king of me. And I trust you and I follow you. The other thing that we see is his heart and his desires for all to be saved. He wants you to be saved. He wants me to be saved. And then once we are saved, he wants to employ us as his witnesses wherever he sends us. This is a big part of, of what we see here is that God is also, once you come to that place of salvation, you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're made a new creation and the Spirit of God indwells you. He then takes the circumstances of your life and he uses them to mold you into the image of Jesus. But the other thing that he does with the circumstances of your life is he takes them and he uses them so that you have an opportunity to live the life of Christ in front of people and then speak the truth about who he is. And so he'll orchestrate the circumstances of your workplace. And so he'll put you in a workplace and, and he'll say, live the Christian life in front of these people. Like, be upright, be moral, be godly as the Spirit empowers you. Work unto the Lord. Be an example of what it is to follow Jesus. And then the people in your workplace are going to look at you and they're going to go, there's something different about you. And then eventually they're going to say, hey, what are you up to this weekend? Well, on Saturday we're doing this. On Sunday we're headed to church. Oh, you go to church? Yeah, God's a really important part of my life. I, you know, Jesus is, is is crucial to my existence. And so you just kind of briefly share that. And then eventually God will take uh, the circumstances and he'll give you an opportunity to share why. And he'll find people that are searching in your workplace and they'll ask a question and they'll say, what do you think about what's going on in my life? And uh, what, what does God have for me? And then you can speak to that. And he'll orchestrate the events of your life so that you can do that. And that's what he's doing with Paul, right? He's taking these circumstances for Paul so that he can give the Sanhedrin another chance to repent and believe in Jesus. And then he's going to take him to the governor Felix and give him a chance to repent and believe. And then he's going to put him in front of Agrippa. And then eventually he's going to make his way to Rome and he's going to talk to the Praetorian Guard and he's going to talk to Caesar. And uh, the gospel is just going to keep moving through the Roman Empire. But in the meantime, God is protecting him. And that's what we see in verse 23. 
see this commander, it says, he summoned two of his centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts to ride so that Paul may be brought safely to Felix the governor. He wrote the following letter. And the way that comes across in the Greek is that Luke is communicating, I have the letter in front of me, I'm copying it. Claudius Lysias, so this is the commander's name, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned he, was, he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before the Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations concerning the questions, the accusations were concerning the questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. The next day, they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry, cavalry to go with him. When these men entered Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor, and they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he, when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's place. And so what God does is he, he has this Roman commander, Claudius Lysias. He takes over 470 soldiers to escort Paul on a 74-mile voyage from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Uh, this guy is taking no chances. And again, you see God is in control. Uh, God is going to make sure uh, that the, he puts a man in, in a position who takes his job seriously. Um, there, there are other instances in history where we see a Roman commander loses control of a situation. Um, a riot does happen, and he has to have his soldiers come in, and uh, it doesn't go so well for the people that are on the other side of a Roman spear. But this guy, he's proactive. He's going to make sure that there's no massacre, no rebellion on his watch. So God, again, is clearly in control. Um, and, and then we learn about this Roman commander, right? This Roman commander, he's a guy who's loyal to, to Roman law. And so he proactively serves and protects Roman interests and Roman citizens. He looks at his nation and he says, this is who I am. My nationality is so important to me. And what's interesting about this guy is he wasn't Roman. He had to actually buy his way into uh, Roman citizenship. His name, Claudius Lysias. He probably became a Roman citizen under Claudius. Um, and so he... It wasn't necessarily his nationality, but he adopted it, and he said, this is a crucial part of who I am. I'm a Roman. I care about Roman interests. And he proactively serves and protects those Roman interests. The, the other thing that we see here is we learn a lot about Paul's identity as we go through this, this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And so he's a man who was fighting against Jesus. He's a man who was persecuting Jesus's followers. He's a man who was imprisoning Jesus's followers and putting them to the death. And then he meets Jesus and a radical transformation takes place in this guy. He's an evil man seeking the death of the followers of God. And God flips his life upside down and totally transforms him into something else. Previously, he's the chief sinner who by God's grace is now a new creation and an ambassador in chains. See, see, Paul knows the old man was crucified, buried, and raised with Christ. He's redeemed. God has bought him with a price, and he's restored to God's family. He, he knows that he's saved and made right and being transformed into the image of Christ. 
Uh, He doesn't belong to the world and its fallen way of thinking and living. Rather, Paul knows his citizenship is in heaven. Uh, He doesn't live for temporal comforts, but for eternal reward. He fights the good fight. He has become all things to all people that he may win some. Right? Paul's not silly enough to think that following Jesus is something you can do half-heartedly. Instead, he pours his whole life into Christ because it's no longer that Paul lives, but Christ who lives in him. See, to him, Paul, to, to Paul, Jesus isn't just a crutch or a backup plan or fire insurance. Jesus isn't his buddy or a pal or some casual acquaintance you give 75 minutes to once a week. No, that wouldn't even be worth doing. See, to Paul, Jesus is the, invi- the image of the invisible God. Uh, Jesus is preeminent and prominent. He's above all and before all. He's first and foremost to Paul. And because that's Paul's identity, because he knows that's who he is, his entire life is dedicated to the expansion of the gospel. He looks at change in Jerusalem, Caesarea, and Rome. He says they're light and momentary affliction compared to the everlasting glory of knowing Jesus and making him known. See, Jesus isn't a part of Paul. Jesus isn't something he thinks about. He's everything. And when Christ takes that center position in our lives, everything around him changes. Everything inside of us changes. Our identity, our actions, they're radically transformed. And so as you walk away from this passage, the kind of the the question we have to ask, and there's four questions in the application, but I just want to do the fourth one. If you were to write your identity in one action that God is leading you to take this week, what would it be? So uh, you say, I am a new creation in Christ. So I don't live for the desires of the flesh, but I live for the prompting of the spirit. I'm not ruled by my passions and desires. I'm ruled by the God of the universe. And so what I do this week won't be driven by my passions and desires and cravings until God makes my passions and desires and cravings match his. When when he causes my cravings to be his cravings, then I'll live those out. But I'm not going to do just what my flesh wants. I'm not going to be ruled by those passions anymore. Because I'm I'm a new creation. I'm not who I used to be. You could be, maybe be more specific and you could say, I am a husband in Jesus Christ. And because I'm a husband in Jesus Christ, I look at Ephesians chapter 5 and it tells me that I'm to love my wife unconditionally and sacrificially, seeking her spiritual growth, caring for her as though she were myself, understanding her. Uh, the scripture tells me that as a husband in Christ, my job is to understand my wife. I need to know her fears, her hopes, and her desires. I need to know what keeps her up at night. I need to know what makes her excited in the coming months. And as I talk to her, I can uncover those things. And so I unconditionally and sacrificially love my wife. I seek her spiritual growth. I understand her mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And then I'm bonded to her alone. There are no others. I forsake all the others, including the ones on the internet, they are not mine, but she is. And so I reject all other forms of intimacy with women. I reject it. 
right? And because I care about her like this, I'm not going to demand things from her physically, but instead what I'm going to do in our physical relationship is I'm going to care for her mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And as I do that, the Bible shows time and again, when a man loves his wife in that way, he cares for her mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. The physical connection that they have is far greater than it could ever be without it. And so that's who I am as a husband in Christ, and that's how I'm going to love my wife. You could write down something like that. You could say, I'm a steward of everything that God has given me. And because I am a steward of everything he's given me, my, uh, my, my talents, my time, and my treasure, I, I want to use those how he's leading. I want to take uh, the time that I have and I want to invest it wisely in things that make their way into eternity. And I'm going to take the talent that God has given me and I'm going to use it for his glory. And the, the treasure, the possessions and money that he's given me, I'm going to make sure that those are used to bless my family, to care for the ones that I love, to reach out for those who don't have. Like most of us, we're doing pretty good. We have plenty to share with others. And so the question is, God, how do you want me to share it? And so that's my encouragement for you as you look at this. Maybe you look at this and you go, hey, I'm not a Christian. Um, I came here this morning because somebody like woke me up and I got here, right? Um, maybe you're watching online. That's who you are. Look, listen to me. God wants you in his family. God cares about you as an individual. He knows your name. He knows your history. He knits you in your mother's womb. He knows everything about you. And he's led you to this point in your life where he would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Will you repent? Will you turn away from living according to your own ways and trust me? And then your free choice has to enter the picture because he's not going to manipulate you. Yes, God, I want relationship with you. I trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the payment of my sins and that I've been bought with a price and that Jesus rose from the dead to give me new life. I don't know what all that means in the future, but I believe it. And I surrender my life to you. And if you say that statement, if you pray that prayer, you're saved. Anyone who calls on the name of Jesus is saved. And so if you're here this morning, you're watching online, that's who you are. I want to invite you into an identity where he says, you're no longer somebody who's fighting against me. You're not an enemy anymore, but I've reconciled you. And now you're my child and he wants to draw you near. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear loud and clear. God is orchestrating the events of your life so that you can be molded into the image of Jesus, live his life in an honorable way around the people that you are with and speak the truth of his gospel. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning that, that you have given us this, this new identity. I thank you that I'm not who I once was. Um, I'm not ruled by the passions of my flesh. Anger does not drive me anymore. Lust does not drive me anymore. I'm not owned by those things. But you freed me from that. You've broken the chains of the bondage that, that had me tied to sin. And you raised me up a new creation in Christ. And so now I'm not ruled by the desires of my flesh, but you are changing my heart so that it matches your passions and desires. God, teach me to crave what you crave. Teach me to use my life for your eternal purposes and your glory. Let me know who I am as your son. Let us know who we are as your sons and daughters. And then cause our lives to be different because of it. And we want to worship you for that transformation right now in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for joining us and listening along with us today. We really hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. Next week, we're going to continue in our series in Acts by digging into Acts chapter 24, so make sure to tune in next week too. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.